Well, there's a lot of things in life that I think about doing periodically, but truth be told, I'll probably never do them. One is buying a motorcycle. And usually it's this time of year, especially when I'm visiting Wisconsin, when I see these big, cool guys. Like, man, that'd be nice to do. And then I think, Chad, you don't know how to ride a motorcycle, and you'd probably wipe it, and my parents sold insurance, and then all these fears kick in, and I'll okay. But every once in a while I think about it. The other is writing a book. But I, honestly, I'm not sure I have enough material to put into a book, but there is something that I might do. I might write a booklet. I like booklets. I like the idea that you could crunch something into a 20-page little thing that maybe someone who's a little more long-winded might put into 500 pages. But if I wrote a booklet, it would be called Things Christians Should Just Stop Saying. And my first chapters might surprise you a little bit, but I think one thing we should stop saying is full-time ministry. Unless if we redefine what that means. Because here's, here, here's my experience. So often people will say, Chad, when did you decide to go into the ministry? Or when did, you, when did God lead you into full-time ministry? And I haven't done it a lot yet, but what I want to do is turn around and say, well, when I was 18, about a week after I came to know the Lord, so when did you decide to go into full-time ministry? And, uh, you know, and that might throw, it might throw you for a loop. You might say, well, I'm an electrician. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, that's, that's exactly my point. Because we equate full-time ministry with a vocational decision. And worse yet, sometimes a person feels like, well, I, I'm, you know, my contribution to God's kingdom, I would probably give it a C plus because I just plant trees or I just put meaningless numbers in an Excel sheet. Or as a young adult told me in Omaha, Nebraska, I, I just couldn't hardly believe she said, well, I'm just a school teacher. Like, wow, is that really your view of ministry? that you kind of do a job for a while, but if you're really special, God calls you into the ministry. It's just a bad idea. So when I visit churches, uh, of course I like to share highlights because people like to know that, but I always try to think of a topic that's not just about the ministry God's called me to, but a ministry that God's called all of us to. The ministry. And this morning I'm going to talk about a ministry that started with a command from Jesus. It actually started before the command. It started with, the very way that he came to this earth. It's, it's a personal calling of mine, but it's not my job. It's just my life. And it started with Jesus' example. He communicated it in the command. And it's for all of us. It's called loving your neighbor. But we're not just going to talk about, you know, Jesus was pretty clear when he talked about uh, the, the Good Samaritan. Our, who is our neighbor? Pretty much everybody, Right? This morning, I'd like to focus on something a little closer to home. Our neighbors of proximity, Grumpy Joe across the street, our boss at the cubicle 10 feet away, the people we see all the time who are some, oftentimes the hardest people to love. So, Lord, help us as we go into this topic, but I pray that it will have impact both in your life and in the Portage community. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that uh, you saw fit to not just uh, send us a book or a message, you sent your son. And he modeled everything that he eventually taught us and commanded us. So we have that in your scriptures. Your Holy Spirit reminds us, reminds us of these things. And this morning, would you touch our hearts? Would you bring us encouragement, not guilt, ideas, not uh, something that would lead to frustration? And would you do it all for the glory of your son, Jesus? Amen. 
Well, our theme passage is in John chapter 1, so if you turn to your Bibles, if you brought your Bible, uh, I'll read it. I'm going to be reading from the NIV 1984. Almost always when I say we're going to talk about neighboring, people don't expect John 1. They expect uh, the Samaritan passage. We're going to do something different here. Okay, I'll read. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's Word. When I read those words, the Word became flesh. I'm kind of an introvert, so it's hard for me to communicate excitement. Lots of times it's all inside. I have to conjure it up a little bit. But if you all even know how excited I get when I read that passage, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. Now, this might your comfort zone, stretch your comfort zone a little bit, but especially if you're sitting next to a family member or a friend who's not going to be alarmed at what I'm going to ask you to do. Go ahead and do it. If you know the person next to you, I want you to grab their arm. And if their sleeve's up a little, just do what you need to do and just pinch their skin a little bit. Not hard. If you had a fight on the way to church, I don't want you to pinch hard and leave a mark. That's not what I'm saying. What I want you to do is just think about this miraculous body that God's given us. We have organs and we have flesh and we have skin. But now think about that. Jesus came with skin on. The gospel... What did my friend Lindy in the video say? The gospel is the need of the world, but it needs a, what does she say? A a capsule or a container. In the person is the container. He's given us this body to be a container, and miraculously, he sent Jesus the same way. The good news, the gospel came with skin on. Much has been written about this passage. I enjoyed reading different commentaries. I'm going to share two quotes by two Christian figures, one a pastor and author named Tim Keller. This is what he said. This is perhaps the most stunning passage in the Bible. Jesus Christ did not simply parachute from heaven at age 33 and die on the cross. He did so much more. He actually dwelled among us and experienced all the pain and hardship of this life for 33 years. Or I saw a book on the table back there, Philip Yancey. The God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind, nor in a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things drank down, 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 so small to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye. An egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, 
This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. The Word became flesh. This word flesh is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. It might be interesting to learn that it's the same word, the, the word sarks. I think I'm saying it right. I'm not Steve or Jeremy here, schooled in Greek. But Matthew 19.6, where Jesus talks about in a marriage we become one flesh, same word. Matthew 26, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or in John 6.55, my flesh is true food, Jesus said. Acts 2, Peter is preaching about Jesus at the Pentecost. and He said, nor did his body see decay. So all of these uh, expressions of this word sarks or flesh is used there. But what should it mean to us? Well, Jesus identified with us fully in his human existence. You know these things. He was hungry and thirsty. He experienced all sorts of relational dynamics that we experience and even struggle with. He had broken friendships. He experienced betrayal. All these things that we associate with ourselves living in this fallen and broken world. He carried a day-to-day job as a carpenter. I'd like to confirm this, but I recently read a commentary that said that even 100 years after Jesus left this earth, there were people using plows with his name on them. Sometimes good to remember that he sweat and he worked and he had job orders for like real life stuff. Like he, he came and he experienced so much in this world that we experience and even struggle with. Listen to this cross-reference. I, I, in my study, I, I w- was meditating on this passage and I wanted to share it. It's Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, meaning us, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That's just an astounding thing that the Son of God left so much behind to become a baby, to become a part carpenter, to become a friend, to become a brother. He shared in our humanity. The gospel came with skin on. I have a friend, and I don't know if I've referenced him before, and some of you who have been in the area might know the name. His name's Jerry Fuzdol. Jerry ran a commercial bakery for years and years and years in Stoughton. Now he lives outside Cambridge. He's in his early 80s. He's the best neighbor I've ever met. The guy's like, if there's a hall of fame for people being good neighbors, Jerry will be in it. When they ran the bakery, he and his wife contacted the newspaper. And maybe it would be harder to do this these days, but Jerry knows how to finesse and relate to people. He said, could you just give us the names of every couple you're going to put in the newspaper when they get married? And they did, and then they'd send them a Navigator marriage book and a a nice card. Not to drum up business, but to just uh, bless couples in the area. And he does so much more. He he used to mow the lawn for the Matt Kenseth Museum and then give the money to give fresh water to families in Africa. That's just Jerry. But one time Jerry said, and for me it was new, for some of you it's not. He said, Chad, sometimes Christians are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I thought, that doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> or even right. But but what he meant was, he's like, we kind of know how to go to church and do the Christian things, but we don't know how to love people all the time. 
What does it say Jesus did? He too shared in their humanity. How do we share in the humanity? We might feel like we live in a world where, and we do, increasingly it's like the very people we want to reach, we feel like we have less and less in common with them. Our politics are different. Our, our views are so different. Obviously, spiritually, uh, how do we relate to people in a fallen and broken world? How do we share in the humanity with someone where we don't maybe even like them, per se? There's a paraphrase of John 1.14 from the message that says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. This morning, I'd like to talk about our neighbors, as I mentioned. Our actual neighbors. I think it would be too broad to talk about all of them. We're, just gonna, we're gonna talk about those people that we have the opportunity to relate to every day. I'm actually gonna share about my neighborhood, which it's the kind of neighborhood I'd never imagined myself living in. And I, the stories might be humorous, but they're real, they're not fabricated. And we're not gonna put them on reality TV. In fact, I hesitate to mention names, but I will and we'll just trust that my friends don't listen to Grace Bible sermons. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm an introvert. I'm not the life of the party. When I'm tired, when I come home from work, the first thing I'm thinking about is not how could we host all of our neighbors in our house or uh, I want to go read the news or watch Sports Center. I don't want to jog across the street to my friend who's parking his car and see how his day went. Like That's not my natural instinct. It's just not. I have a hard enough time being nice to my kids sometimes at the end of the day. <laughs> I'm just tired. And by way of reminder, being a neighbor is not my job. You're not supporting me as a church so that I can be someone's neighbor. That, that's just not what I do. But I do long to be a good neighbor. And I want to see God's gospel advance cross-culturally through those families who probably wouldn't darken the door of a church on Father's Day. So how do we reach those people? One of the issues I think we have is, whether we know it or not, we kind of have this works ministry scorecard. Like we want to do something for the kingdom that people notice. And if nobody notices, it really tests our allegiance and why we're doing something. But uh, you know, if I were to bring a neighbor family to church, would be, which would be awesome, and I think I will. Or if uh, somebody here was having a men's chili feed cookout, if I brought a couple of cars of people, everybody would notice. But would they notice if I shoveled someone's driveway? Would they notice if uh, I did something for one of my neighbors and they didn't even know it was me? It really tests our personal intimacy with God and, and why we do things. And neighborhood ministry tends to be slow because we're building bridges with people. We're not just proclaiming the message. That's a big part of it. Many of us know how to say the message. We just struggle with how do you live it with people who we know disagree with it currently. That's what I'm learning. We, but in the process, sadly, we often end up devaluing what God esteems in our day-to-day -day life. Being a good neighbor for us might feel kind of like an obligation or even a hassle. To God, it's worship and mission. Well, uh, I don't always come here thinking about right away, but whenever I'm in Partyville or Portage, I just start thinking about the good old days fishing. Like I, I spend so many weeks, months probably, on the ice or on the lake with my dad. Uh, I can remember fishing Lake Montello in November one year, actually on Thanksgiving Day, with probably an inch and a half of ice. 
Have I shared these stories before? It's all right. It's been such a long time. You don't remember. I can remember walking out to a tip-up and seeing the water lunging through the holes as I was walking out there, just for my weight. I can remember being on Lake Puckaway where we had the canoe about 50 feet out to the ice, slide the canoe up on the ice, and then kind of tiptoe for about 20 feet as the ice broke behind us. But one of my favorite places to fish was always Lake Mason. When I was a kid, we camped at Wagon Wheel Campground. When we ice fished, we'd launch on, I guess, what's the north side off the stumps, and we'd walk out. But, and my dad's deceased now, but I remember things that my dad would say. And he hated, he hated following the crowds, whether it's on, in the boats or on the ice. And I can remember all the time, when, you know, you, you'd be pulling your little sleds out, and here we go, especially if it's a fishery. The huts, maybe music, maybe football games going on. It's like a carnival out there. And that was the last place my dad wanted to go. But as a kid, you're like, Dad, that's probably where all the fish are, right? You know, why would all those people be? And he's like, that's where the fish were a week ago. Look at all the old holes. Look at all the dead men. And then he'd say, look at that guy over there. And on Mason, I guess that would be probably the west end. But there'd always be this guy in a solitary bucket. And you kind of want to, you feel sorry for him, right? He's probably kind of lonely, you know. He's missing out on the carnival. All that. He's not lonely, is he? He's living the dream. Those fish are undisturbed. You know, he probably had to drill 15, 20 holes to find them. But he doesn't have some guy trying to drill eight feet behind him and crowd over him and take, steal his holes. And he's living the dream out there. To me, that's my picture of neighborhood ministry. We tend to think that I just need to pause and clarify. Uh, I love the idea of bringing people to church. And I love the idea of people experience. People need to experience the body of Christ, not just through one person. They need to see the community in action. They need to experience the family of a church community. What I'm focusing on this morning is my experience, but I'm guessing it's some of your experiences. There are people where it's almost like a cross-cultural ministry to bring the gospel to them. They never went to church. They went to a certain kind of church and they've been angry about it for 30 years. So it's just not your first step. And if my only tool in my quiver is like, man, if I can't get them to come with me to something. So I'm not talking about attracting people to something. I'm talking about living among them. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling where? Among us. So how do we live among those people? And when I think of a neighborhood... It's like the world's your oyster. You have this whole street, this whole neighborhood of people. You don't have to have a clever cookout and clever invite cards to get them to come to your backyard. You just go to their backyard. There's a baptism. You somehow end up at their kid's baptism. Even if you don't agree with the church, you find ways to get involved in their world. And you don't worry about bringing them to the crowds. The guy in the bucket's living the dream. We all have amazing ministry opportunities just with those, these people God's planted us among who are broken and messed up just like us, but we have the good news. All right, I rabbit trailed a little bit. Trust, we, trust me when I say I'm not a professional neighbor. If there ever one, Jerry was probably a professional. I'm not a professional neighborhood. I live, in a, I live on a street with probably 20 to 24 houses. I think one family goes to church periodically. It's Minneapolis. They're liberal. They're progressive. 
I don't even know how to talk to them about things. I'm not a professional neighborhood. I'm a neighbor. I'm a navigator. Every day I have to ask God, God, what do I do next? Which is the beauty of it. So as you listen to my stories this morning, there might be an idea you hear me say that like, oh, I could do that. Or I would challenge you to think, okay, would that work exactly in Portage? You might have to translate it and tweak it a little bit. But really my heart, if I could encourage you anyway, is that God has planted you where he's planted you for a purpose. And if we have to be more dependent on him because we don't know how to do it, that's a good thing. That's what God's teaching me. Let me tell you a little bit about my neighborhood. When I say my neighborhood, I'm talking about the Fulton neighborhood, which is several thousand people. And then I'm going to zero in on my street and my friends. One thing I like about living where I live in Minneapolis is it's more like a small town than anything I've experienced except for Partyville. Because it's not just like one big melting pot in the city. In a neighborhood in a city, we have a family-owned fourth-generation hardware store passed down through generations where the manager brings his dog. They have a popcorn machine and probably one out of three times I go there, I see somebody I know. We have a park down the street. We have a lake. My kid's school is walking distance. So there's so many parts of my city I don't understand, but I I feel like there's a sense of identity in our neighborhood, much like in a smaller, medium-sized town. On my street, there are single people, There are married people with no children. There are married people with children. There are unmarried people with no children and children. And many other categories in between that I won't get into. But that's just my street. That's where God's put us. One of my neighbors, his name is Mike. He lives two houses down. And uh, we all have these little bungalow houses in the city with an alley and detached garages in the back with hardly any backyard. So we're kind of like the 1950s in the sense that people do sit out on the front steps and kids do bike up and down the sidewalks and people don't hide on their deck in the back. Like we're always around each other. For an introvert, it's kind of stretching. But it's, it's great. So my friend Mike, his house is kind of on a hill. It's the oldest house on the street. They're all built in the 1920s and we call that the summit. We all have each other's text, uh, cell phone numbers and email addresses and oftentimes I'll get a text and then my phone's just vibrating for like five minutes And it's summit time, and everybody has their lawn chairs out on the front steps or on the front porch, the front hill summit. Uh, There's another thing that we've utilized that kind of surprised me when I first became a city person. There's a website called nextdoor.com. And Nextdoor is a website for neighborhoods. I think there's 120,000 neighborhoods around the country that are on the site. But the way I've made use of it is if I ever need a tool or I have to borrow something, you can mention something on there and then people respond. So my first month on the street, I was doing some home projects. I went to Home Depot and I fantasized about buying a nail gun and I'm like, Chad, you're going to spend a hundred and some dollars for something you're going to use a half hour. So I put it on next door and within three hours, three people offered to bring their nail gun to my house so I could use it. I ended up borrowing one from someone I never met. It was brand new. And he said, just call me when you're done and I'll come and pick it up for you. So it's interesting. It's uh, uh, People, they have a deep sense of community and sharing life and doing, together, doing life together. The vast majority do not know Christ, but it provides an opportunity to be involved in each other's life and to build bridges and credibility in how we serve them. Let me share a few stories about some of our neighbors. Uh, when we first moved there, my wife was praying and we were praying, how do we get to know these people? 
And one of the things that happened was we found out there's a women's book club. Is anybody involved in a book club? <laughs> there's got to be a few. You're just embarrassed to say. No, there's a woman. So there's a book of the month where these women choose a book. They meet. They're having, they're having wine. Oftentimes they're talking a little bit about the book and gabbing about a lot of other things. And they don't go to Zondervan's or the Christian bookstore to pick their books. Trust me. There's been books where my wife... She kind of reads the summary because she, she just doesn't want to read the book, but she wants to get to know these women. And early on, my wife is outspoken and I love her for it. I forget they were talking about and she said, well, I'm a Jesus lover. And these, these city ladies kind of looked nervous and whatever, but, uh, but she, she raised her flag early on. One of the women in this book club, I am going to call her Cheryl. Cheryl uh, was pregnant. And from the, my wife's pretty intuitive. She just kind of felt like, I don't think she likes me. Or she's, she's unsure about me. And Cheryl and her husband lived across the street. And before we knew it, they had their baby. And postpartum sets in. And we're kind of hearing it through the grapevine of the book club. You know, they, we find everything out about, through the, find out about everything from the book club. But uh, they're struggling. They're a new couple. They're young professionals. And... Welcome to the world of parenting. They can't do all the things they used to, but she's, she's depressed. So my wife just starts bringing her food, like all the time. And I didn't know she was doing it at first until one day I came back home and there were like six sets of Pyrex dishes on the, table, on the counter. I'd been wondering where they had all gone, and they brought them back all at once. But somewhere in there, and I know, I know that many of you have experienced this just in how you serve people, but it broke down the barrier that we were here to do good and not harm that we were trustworthy people. And Cheryl and her, and her husband really warmed up to us. And I became Uncle Chad with their little girl, Liesl, and uh, That was in the fall. In the winter, I, thought like, I felt like we'd made progress in the neighborhood, and I was trying not to be too exuberant or weird early, but I just wanted to do something. And I don't know if you remember this. This would have been December of 2016, but... This previous year and the year before that, the coldest week in the whole year was like a couple week, weeks before Christmas, at least for us. And uh, it was a Friday, and I'd never used the group text or email for everybody in our neighborhood, but I decided, what the hey, we're going to do it. So I texted everybody, and I said, coffee and sticky buns at the Celgies tomorrow morning. If you're out shoveling, you don't, have to, we're not gonna, you don't have to stay long. Just come and warm up, or you can stay and visit. And I sent out the text on a Friday, and 19 people came. Uh, in our little bungalow in Minneapolis. We still have pictures of it. Uh, parents from out of town, babies, couples. It was, ma- it was amazing. And the walls started to come down. A month later, our friend Cheryl yells at me across the street and said, that was so much fun, we're going to do it. Does anybody remember the movie The Breakfast Club from the 80s? We're going to call it the Abbott Avenue Breakfast Club. And bless her heart, they did it and they had more people than we did and some of their friends who weren't from the street. They had things we didn't have, like Bloody Marys. Like it was, it was the whole nine yards. <laughs> Cheryl and her husband have friends. Um, they're gay. And uh, I started talking to this man, and he was friendly. He approached me, he started talking, and, and then he said, this is my partner. And I said, well, are you from the Twin Cities? No, no, I'm from uh, a different state, and... Are your parents still there? Or I, so I was just I trying not to poke around too much, but I didn't know if his family. He said, no. So my dad's still back there, but 
it's probably good for him. It's a good place for people who just like to hunt and not spend time with their families. But wow, that was a lot for meeting somebody's friend at a breakfast club. And then on my way out the door, uh, one of the other couples on our street, the Catholic family, she works at a Catholic school, she said she had to leave early. And I'd heard through the grapevine, their, one of their best friends was in South America on business and he was killed. And they had a memorial service later that day. And so I stopped her by the door and one of my friends who's an evangelist, I'm not an evangelist, he always says when people share their pain, they're, they're asking for Jesus. <laughs> I said, I'm, can I pray for your family? And when are you leaving? Oh, we have to leave at four. And I can tell you the Sunday it was because, uh, well, the Packers beat the Bears that day. Those are kind of my landmarks on the... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. That was a different day. It was a big Packer game, and they lost by like 40 for some reason. I, I can remember that. Because what happened was I decided to bring them a pot of chili because they weren't cooking, they were sad, and I brought it at halftime because the game was over already. But... Um, <laughs> So I'm trying to share earthy, just day-to-day stories. Not flashy, not something that someone who's super spiritual could only do. But I will say, I've probably prayed and asked for God's leading with the little steps more than I ever have. Like, what do you want me to do next? I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know when the conversation's going to open. But oftentimes, I don't even know what to do next. I have a neighbor named Nate. Nate's a single guy. He's old. He has a motorcycle, a BMW, and a 4x4. And he's like 29. He's an engineer. He's single. He's living the dream. We had a snowstorm in April where we had 19 inches in like a day. I think you guys probably got snow and rain. I'm not sure. I look outside that night, and he's outside with his ski jacket, his goggles, and a lawn chair drinking a beer at like 9 o'clock at night waving at me across the street. <laughs> Nate is the biggest servant. And best that I can tell, I don't know Jesus, but he, he seems to have less inhibition with me and he'll ask questions about our family and I'll tell him things. I needed to bring a boardroom table to our new navigator office and he was a little hungover and he had a date that morning, but he took the time to help me load the table in his truck and bring it to my office on a Saturday morning. He's just a servant. And that's another thing I'm learning. If we give people the opportunity to bless us and serve us, Oftentimes that helps them to feel like they have a part and they're more receptive to what we might bring them too. So I have all these crazy relationships going on and, and I'm learning. And uh, in the video somewhere, one of the leaders said, we live and disciple among the lost. Uh, that's what God has done. Didn't he live and disciple among the lost? The Samaritan woman, the rich young ruler, uh, we live in a fallen and broken world with this amazing opportunity to bring the gospel to people in our daily experience. Let me just share a few potential takeaways for you. Uh, there's a handout that I think I saw Jeremy passing out. Um, and then we'll wrap up in prayer. But one of the things I thought I'd share as I've just pondered this myself, I'm pretty good at like getting excited about a certain kind of ministry. And then the natural thing for me is it to kind of fizzle and I'm not out, you're not always excited. You start excited and things can fizzle, especially when it's just hard. So the question I ask is what keeps me doing this neighborhood thing? 
I haven't seen a lot of, I haven't seen people come to Christ yet. It's slow. Sometimes I feel stupid because I don't know how to enter into certain kinds of conversations or I'm not savvy, whatever. Two things. First of all, Jesus. We've been talking about all morning. He did it. He commanded it. It's our calling. If, if we don't reach our neighbors, who will? That's the first one. The second answer to that question is surprise myself a little bit. And it's this. It's not, it's not like a, just a deep sense of obligation. It's that I actually like living this way better. I like, I like living in community with people and I don't want to just be the guy that they only see when our kids are selling something for school. I don't want to be the guy that all they know is my car has gone three or four days a week when I'm at church, but they never even see me and they don't know me. I don't want to be that person. And I don't want to be a person who gets up at churches and talks about stuff, but I don't even do it. And it's rich. Isn't it a rich opportunity? We, 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 we can... I think we can almost over-glamorize something that I do or perhaps like crossing an ocean to do something. But as they said in the video, we can all cross the street. We can all talk to Grumpy Joe. I heard a great story. A, fr- a friend of a friend decided they were going to set up a little table with coffee and donuts one day a week where all the kids got walked by their parents to get on the school bus. But as he was trying to develop kind of a community buy-in with this, he, didn't want, he wanted to get all the, the neighbors involved. Someone said, don't talk to Nancy. She doesn't like people. (laughs) Don't we all maybe, or at some point in our life, there was that house with someone that they kind of were isolated and people might even say, yeah, don't talk to Nancy. (laughs) But he said, I'm going to talk to Nancy. And sometimes people have like an old snapshot of something somebody said like eight years ago. Or they have an experience, maybe it was 30 years ago when you, went into their yard to get a ball and they yelled at you. And then we kind of defined somebody by these snapshots. He went to this lady's house and she was so happy. She said, Can I make, I have a, I have a recipe. Can I make the cinnamon rolls? So uh, I just like the idea of living that way. And I like the idea of ministry not just being something that the navigators pay me to do, but I get to do it for fun. I get to bring the gospel to people in example and in word. Here's a few applications for you to consider. I guess the first one's a no-brainer, but I would just start praying. And I'm guessing for most of you, it's not a matter of how do I get started. You're already doing it. But there might be things you've been wondering about or putting on the shelf that you could do now. And I would encourage you to ask God, how could you have relationships with people who think and live differently than you? religiously, politically, all these things that make our culture more divided and divisive, might it be that God's planted you there to be the best friend in the world to someone who's different? And might it be that you could be the one on speed dial on their phone when life falls apart? Wouldn't that be a goal to aspire for? Number two, uh, I like practical ideas. I like things to get me started. So I passed out, or Jeremy passed out, a little sheet called My Five. And uh, it's just a little guide to start thinking strategically about your neighborhood. Now, I know this church is thinking strategically about the neighborhood at large, but the neighborhood at large is made up of little pieces, and one of those pieces is your neighborhood. 
So how does God want to use you there? I am the most forgetful navigator in the world. If I didn't see my kids every day, I'd maybe forget their names. I, I just I forget things. So what I did is I drew a map of my street with all the houses, and I wrote as many little mental hooks on there I could so I wouldn't forget. Because I, I hate that when I'm out on the street and I, like, I just had dinner with somebody and I can't remember their name. So I made a map, I wrote their names, in some cases their professions, or you know, lapsed Catholic, the guy with the grill, that, different things like, oh yeah, yeah, then I can remember, because we have like four, four Jasons on our street. And then I taped it on the inside of one of our kitchen cabinets, because I don't want it sitting out where people would see it. But I just need to be more intentional, and I need to esteem what God esteems, this calling that he's given me in my everyday relationships. So... Thank you for listening this morning, and I have a passion for my city. I also have a passion for your town and the surrounding communities, and I know Grace Bible has a big part in advancing God's kingdom and his gospel right here. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you uh, loved and crossed cultures, cultural taboos at times how you entered into people's lives in a way that felt significant and loving. Would you help us to do the same? I pray that your light would just increasingly shine on the streets and neighborhoods of this community. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.